Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. On Friday, March 13th, 2020, Governor Tim Waltz declared a peacetime state of emergency in the state of Minnesota three years ago now. That Sunday, March 15th, churches throughout our state closed their doors, services went online. Remember that? Beginning on Wednesday, March 18th, all public schools in the state of Minnesota were closed. Education gradually transitioned to distance learning options. On Friday, March 27th, all non-essential businesses were closed. A stay-at-home order was given by our governor. Everything ground to a halt. High school basketball tournaments shut down. March Madness canceled. My brother called me, he said, he just got back from the grocery store, he said, I felt like I was in an end times movie. (laughs) And I said to him, you know what, Kev, maybe you were, only it's not a movie. That Monday, after we shut down our church, our staff got together, six feet apart, and uh, spent the morning, we were spent the morning just praying and seeking God. Uh, Pastor Jeff, you remember him, huh? Pastor Jeff, he was on cloud nine. He said, isn't it exciting? (laughs) And you know what? His enthusiasm was contagious. From that day on, we chose as a staff to embrace this COVID craziness and whatever God had in store for us. And now, three years later, we can see that COVID has changed our lives forever in lots of different ways. A larger question is, when God moves and speaks, as he did during COVID, when he disrupts the status quo, how do you respond? How do you respond to that? You see, nothing happens by chance. Signature moments in history, they don't just happen randomly like 9-11. Or events like the assassination of President Kennedy, landing on the moon, the invention of the internet, the development of smartphones, the legalization of gay marriage. These events do not happen in a vacuum. God brings them to pass. And they change us forever. Now, how it impacts you exactly is your choice. You can embrace whatever God is doing, and you can let God lead you day by day, moment by moment, or you can resist what God is doing and grow bitter and resentful. Choice is yours. On March 30th, 33 AD, one of those seminal moments in world history occurred in the city of Jerusalem. No one who was there that day would ever be the same 
again. Jesus Christ publicly assumed the title that was always rightfully his, the King of Israel. The long-awaited Messiah arrives in the city of Jerusalem, and he set in motion a series of events that would have a life-changing impact on every human being who has ever lived. In John chapter 12, there are four distinctions that set aside the day of our Lord's triumphal entry from all other days. It happened in a particular moment with a passionate multitude in a predicted manner that puzzled mankind. We're going to examine these four distinctions one by one. The first distinction about the triumphal entry is that it happened at a particular moment, a moment chosen by the Lord from eternity past. Verse 12 says, The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Did you know that the events of Palm Sunday may actually have happened on a Monday? Back in verse 1, the Bible says, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrives in Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given. Now we know the Passover happened on a Friday, so it was likely the Saturday before when Jesus arrives in the small village of Bethany. That evening a dinner is given in Jesus' honor. And then it was likely that the next day, a Sunday, a large crowd of Jews gathered. That's what it says in verse 9, which would mean that it was actually a Monday when Jesus prepared to enter the city of Jerusalem. The date was March 30th, 33 AD. Now I've shared this chart previously with you. This particular date, March 30th, A.D. 33, was exactly 173,880 days since King Xerxes had issued his decree to rebuild Jerusalem. 483 prophetic years exactly. This was a precise fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9.25. Sir Robert Anderson of Scotland Yard has done the research on this. He shows that it was this exact day. Harold Honer of Dallas Theological Seminary wrote a whole book about this because it's such a stunning prophecy. Jesus entered Jerusalem at a day and time that was ordained before the world was created. Acts 4.27 puts it like this. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. 
they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You see, folks, nothing happens by chance. In John 12, 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The Greek word for hour is hora, which means a precise, a limited period of time that has been predetermined by God. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us, all of us, to number our days. That's what the Bible says. We are to number our days. Why? That we may gain a heart of wisdom. The Hebrew word for number means to weigh out. We are to reflect deeply on the time that God gives us on this earth. We are to invest our lives wisely. Ephesians 5.16 says, Make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. If you're like me and memorize this verse as a child, you will have memorized it as redeem the time for the days are evil. The Greek word for make the most of every opportunity or redeem, it means to take full advantage of it, to seize an opportunity. And you know what? That's all the more important when things take a negative turn, when things turn ugly. Winston Churchill says, never waste a good crisis. And he lived his whole life by that motto. Because over and over again, when the chips were down, when his opponents counted him out, Winston Churchill had a way of resurrecting his career. And he came storming back. The same thing is true of Peter Lynch, a legendary investor who oversaw the Magellan Fund for Fidelity Investments. From 1977 to 1990, Peter Lynch turned $20 million into $14 billion. He learned how to succeed in a bull market when the stocks are going up, and he learned how to succeed in a bear market when the stocks are going down. You see, like Churchill, Lynch was not one to waste a good crisis. As Jesus prepared to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that day, things were looking up, 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 up. But four days later, tables turned. But you know what? God reigned over it all, and he caused it to work together for good. God can do the same thing in your life. Will you trust him today? In the good times and in the not-so-good times. Now let's move to the second distinction about the triumphal entry. Not only happened at a particular moment, it happened with a passionate multitude. Verse 12 says, The next day the great crowd had come for the feast, and they heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches, and they went out to meet him. And they cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. <clears throat> Excuse me. According to verse 17, 
Some of this great crowd had heard that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead (laughs) after four days. And they wanted to see this miracle worker for themselves. The crowds were so big, the Pharisees said in verse 19, look, the whole world's gone crazy about him. The Jewish historian Josephus estimates that three million Jews made the annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Now we had 11 from Heartland here who went to Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1997 for the Stand in the Gap Promise Keepers Rally. Some of you might remember that. 1.1 million men gathered on the mall near the Capitol. I can personally testify, that's a lot of people. (laughs) Now when it says in verse 12 that a great crowd went out to meet Jesus, it wasn't a few hundred. I don't think it was even a few thousand. I think we're actually talking hundreds of thousands here. They were likely elbow to elbow. Now here's a map showing how this unfolded. It was either a Sunday or a Monday morning when Jesus left the village of Bethany. The disciples went on ahead to Bethphage to secure a donkey for Jesus to ride on. From Bethphage, the cheering crowds would grow as Jesus rode his donkey over the Mount of Olives. And then as he neared the city, Jesus begins to weep over the city. You know why he wept? Because he knew what was ahead. He knew that this city that was welcoming him now was going to reject him. And he knew that because of that rejection, the Romans, God had ordained that the Romans would destroy the city of Jerusalem and their beloved temple 37 years later. Jesus knew all of this, and so he wept. But then he composes himself because he sees the massive crowds and they're cheering him and they're waving palm branches. Jesus would enter Jerusalem through the Eastern Gate, which is also called the Golden Gate. And from there he goes directly to the temple and making several stops before returning to Bethany later that evening. The triumphal entry is one of the few events in the life of Christ that is described in all four of the Gospels. Virtually every step of our Lord's journey is teeming with significance, like his entry through the Golden Gate. You see, today, when you visit the city of Jerusalem, you will notice that the Golden Gate is sealed. This happened by order of Suleiman the Magnificent in 1540 A.D. Suleiman was the ruling sultan of the Ottoman Empire, Turkey, at the time, and he sealed the gate to prevent the Jewish Messiah from entering Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Suleiman believes that 16 feet of concrete is going to alter the Messiah's plans. 
Suleiman also builds a Muslim cemetery right in front of the Golden Gate. You can see it today. We've walked among it. And uh, he does that because he thinks that a Jewish holy man would never set foot in a Muslim cemetery. The ceiling of the Golden Gate seems to be a fulfillment of Ezekiel 44, verses 1 and 2, which was written about 600 B.C. It says this, The gate is to remain shut. It must not be opened. No one may enter through it. It is to remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. Now this happened when Jesus entered through this gate in 33 AD. Folks, it's going to happen again. When Jesus returns after seven years of tribulation at the end of our age, Zechariah 14.4 says, On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. From the Mount of Olives, as you face Jerusalem, the nearest gate to enter the city is the Golden Gate. The Bible says the Mount of Olives, when Jesus steps on it, it was going to be split in two. Can you imagine that? At any rate, at some point, Jesus will enter the city again through this ancient Golden Gate. Man, that's going to be an amazing day. Once again, I believe the, cheer, the crowds are going to be cheering him on. They're going to be hailing him at the, as the king of kings. Only this time, a crown will replace a cross. According to Zechariah 14 and Revelation 20, Jesus will set up his millennial kingdom. He will rule and reign out of Jerusalem for a thousand years. Now this brings us to the third distinction about the triumphal entry. Not only will it happen at a particular moment, not only will it happen with a passionate multitude, it will also happen in a predicted manner. All of this was ordained by God before time began. Verse 14 says, Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. The way in which Jesus entered Jerusalem was prophesied 500 years earlier in Zechariah 9 verse 9. In fulfilling this prophecy, Jesus is sending a message here that he would enter Jerusalem as the humble prince of peace. Only when he returns a second time, Revelation 19.11, he will ride the white horse of a conqueror. The massive crowd seems to pay no attention to the fact that Jesus is riding on a donkey. Instead, they hail him as the king of Israel. Matthew 21.8 says that the people spread their coats on the road. That was something that was only done for royalty. The palm branches were symbols associated with Israel. 
You see, back in the days of the Maccabees, when the city of Jerusalem was recaptured from the Syrian army, the Jews hailed their heroes by waving palm branches. That was something that was done throughout the ancient world. When a conquering hero would return to his capital, he would bring the spoils of war with him. Even to this day, you can go to the city of Rome. You can see the triumphal arch of Titus, which celebrates the conquest of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. As Rome expanded its empire, this was a common scene. Everyone loves a winner. Now, in the case of Jesus... The miraculous resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, If you want to go back to the slide on Lazarus there. uh, The miraculous resurrection of Lazarus seems to galvanize his crowing support. You can imagine how the account of Lazarus climbing out of the tomb after being there for four days, it had to capture the hearts of the masses If someone has power over life and death, imagine that. What army could possibly stand in their way? Of course, Lazarus wasn't his only miracle. When John the Baptist sent his disciples to ask Jesus if he truly was the Messiah, Jesus pointed them to his miracles. Go back, he said. Report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The good news is preached to the poor. Friends, over 300 prophecies made about Jesus in the Old Testament were fulfilled at his first coming. 300 prophecies. He would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would be born of the royal line of David. He would come from the tribe of Judah. He would come at a time predicted by the prophet Daniel. He would be betrayed by a close friend. He would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. He would be mocked. He would be crucified even though crucifixion had yet to be invented when the prophecy was given. Soldiers would gamble for his clothing. That was prophesied. He would die among the wicked and he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Most important of all, the grave would not hold him and he would conquer death and come alive Again, do you realize that the mathematical odds of any one person fulfilling even this small sampling of prophecies is astronomical? How many have filled out a bracket for the, for the uh, March Madness? Anybody fill out a bracket? You know, we've, we do that every year in our family. Uh, we have uh, the Johnson family uh, bracket, uh, and then we compete against each other. This year, man, we were bad. 
I mean, there was just way too many upsets. Do you realize that the odds, no one's ever even come close, but the odds of calling all 63 games correctly is one in five quintillion, okay? No one's ever even come close. Most of the time, I think this year they were out, um, no one made it past the second day. Okay, there's six days. Okay, uh, and, and this is, you know, millions of people filling out brackets. So uh, you just have to realize uh, the odds here and the odds of Jesus fulfilling all these prophecies is astronomical. Everyone who witnessed the triumphal entry of Jesus had to be thinking the same thing, that the sky's the limit for this guy. This guy's the real deal. The disciples had to be bursting with pride on this glorious day. And then, suddenly, everything changed. And the tables turned. Which brings us to the fourth distinction about the triumphal entry. Although it happened at a particular moment with a passionate multitude in a predicted manner, it also puzzled mankind. It puzzled them. Look at verse 16. It says, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. You ever been there? Something terrible happens in your life. And at first, you can't see any rhyme or reason to this. Why is this happening, Lord? It says, only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. You see, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem was an intoxicating moment for the disciples. At last, their dreams of glory, they were coming to a fruition. The resurrection of Lazarus had impacted the masses in a very powerful way. Now, if there were pollsters at that time and they were surveying the crowds, I can imagine that Jesus may very well have been polling in the 80% approval range. You know the last American president to poll at 80% or more? George W. Bush, right after 9-11. That's how unusual it is. The country rallied behind the President Bush. That's what the Jewish people were doing with Jesus. And yet... Within the span of four days, the situation completely reversed. Among the crowds clamoring for Jesus to be crucified, it is likely that he was polling no more than 20% approval. So what happened? Folks, we know from the scriptures that there were many things that happened. One is that Jesus threw the money changers out of the temple. Now, if the tri triumphal entry occurred on a Monday, it was probably Tuesday when that occurred. The crowds who welcomed Jesus into the city the day before were expecting him to challenge the Roman authorities. But instead, Jesus goes after the, his own Jewish leaders. Okay? And Jesus insulted 
the Pharisees. In the temple courtyard, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you, Pharisees, you are making it a den of robbers. That didn't go over very well. The next day, which was Wednesday, Jesus continues to spar with the, with, with the Pharisees on the temple grounds. Now, many people, many Christians today, assume that the Pharisees were unpopular with the Jewish people, but that's not the case. The Pharisees were very popular at that time because they were the ones who were challenging the Romans, okay? And that was a very popular thing to do. Now, remember... When Jesus defended paying taxes to Caesar in Matthew 22, this occurred during Holy Week, that was a very unpopular thing to say, that they were to pay taxes to the Romans. That did not gain him any brownie points at all with the masses. And then, on top of that, Jesus got into it with the Sadducees, another powerful group in Jerusalem. The Sadducees tended to be Roman sympathizers. They were very secular. They didn't believe in a bodily resurrection from the dead, but Jesus go at, goes after them on that. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. 29, also during Holy Week. And he corrects them, and he alienates them also. So now he has both the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are turning against him. And then... In Matthew 23, Jesus launches an all-out assault on the Pharisees. You know, if he was uh, on social media today, uh, he would be saying some very nasty things, okay? This is what he told them to their faces. He called them blind fools. He called them a brood of vipers, a brood of snakes, he called them whitewashed tombs, and he called them sons of hell, okay? How would you like somebody posting that on social media about you, okay? Now, can you start to see here how these Jewish leaders, they were potentially allies with Jesus. Uh, if Jesus was going to lead an insurrection with, against Rome, they would have been all for that. But now they have become entrenched enemies. This guy just called me a son of hell. He called me a, he called me a snake. You know? I mean, uh, there was a lot of animosity there. And then, as if all of that wasn't enough to rattle the disciples, Jesus begins to talk repeatedly about dying. Okay? Throughout John 12 through John 17, he talks about dying repeatedly. He talks about the, the temple being destroyed. They didn't like hearing that. And then in Matthew 24, all of this happened during Holy Week. He makes all of these ominous prophecies about the future. And so by Thursday, the disciples were thoroughly confused. So when they gathered for the Last Supper, there was a cloud of heaviness over them like they had never known before. And then Jesus announces right at the supper that one of them would betray him. Can you imagine that? 
It really is no wonder that Peter draws his sword and cuts off the ear of one of the men who is sent to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples were trying to determine whether they were to fight or were they, whether they were to just acquiesce to the mob. By 9 a.m. on Friday morning, Jesus was hanging on a cross just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. In a span of four days, one of the world's most popular leaders became one of the world's most despised leaders. John 12, 16 sums up this confusion by saying, at first, the disciples didn't understand all this. They were totally confused. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things that had been written about him, these were prophecies, tons of them. And they realized that these things had been done to Jesus by the Romans and the Jews because it had been prophesied. Friends, I want to ask you today, can you identify with the disciples? Have you ever had a season where life is just rolling along and everything is going great and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, you are hit with a trial that just knocks you off stride and it's confusing and you find yourself crying out to God, Lord, what are you doing? I was right in the middle of experiencing this amazing blessing, and then whammo, I suddenly feel like I'm drowning, and no one's throwing me a life preserver. Have you been there? I close with this. I want to tell you a true story of how quickly life can change. In his book, Halftime, Bob Buford tells the story of growing up as a Christian, creating a cable television empire as a young man. By the time he was 44, he had achieved all of his goals for accumulating wealth. Can you imagine that? This was a time of triumph. This was going through the gates of Jerusalem with hundreds of thousands of people cheering for you, okay? This is triumph. Bob Buford felt that God wanted him to invest the bulk of his life in eternal matters, so he paused to recalibrate, to seek God. It was halftime for Bob Buford. He sought God. He made some major changes in his life so that his business would continue to go forward without a lot of personal um, interaction with him. And uh, he wanted to free up more time for eternal investments. And then out of the blue, right after he had made that decision, everything changed for Bob Buford. On the evening of January 3rd, 1987, Bob receives a phone call telling him that his son Ross, his only child, his heir apparent, had disappeared in the Rio Grande River that separates Texas and Mexico. Triumph suddenly turns to tragedy. Did we see that in Nashville last Monday? You know, I looked at those pictures. I read everything I could about that pastor. 
of that church. And I looked at his family, three sons, precious little girl. I thought of the Welch family, three sons, precious little girl. Nine-year-old Hallie, suddenly taken from, from them. What a tragedy. Tragedy. Ross was 24 years old. He and his two buddies wanted to experience what it was like for illegal aliens to cross the river. Four months later, four months later, they found his body 10 miles downriver. Needless to say, Bob and his wife Linda were overwhelmed with grief. Bob cries out to God for answers. Why, Lord? Why now? Don't you see, Lord? I'm preparing to serve you the rest of my life. And God led him to a simple Quaker prayer about giving and receiving. And I want to encourage you to do this with me today. The first part of the prayer is done with your palms up. You want to do that right now? You can do that. You can visualize yourself receiving everything you need from the Lord. Everything we have is a gift from God. Your time, your property, your bank account, your very life, God has given that to you. Slowly, intentionally, Bob gave those blessings, all of those blessings, he gave them back to his creator. And he vowed to use his remaining days to honor God. In fact, God chose, or Bob chose his own epitaph for his tombstone. <laughs> I don't know if I could quite go that far, but uh, he did that. His epitaph was 100x. It was taken from the parable of the sower here in Matthew 13. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it, and this is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Bob vowed, I'm going to produce 100 times what the Lord has put in me. That was his prayer. The second part of the, of the Quaker prayer is with your palms down. Because slowly, intentionally, Bob Buford visualized leaving all of his cares and all of his concerns in the lap of a loving God. He prayed, Lord, to you, I release these cares. I release these concerns because I know that you love me you loved me enough to give your only son on my behalf. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Once again, I accept what you have done for me as sufficient. In Jesus' name, he prayed. And then with that, after he released these cares and concerns, Bob quoted Romans, Romans 8:28. We know that in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And then Bob Buford spoke these words. He said, adios, Ross, for now. Okay, Ross is only son. Adios, Ross, for now. 
In 2018, Bob Buford died at the age of 78. Christianity Today eulogized him as one of the most, most influential but least known leaders in church history. He was co-founder of the Leadership Network. His halftime book has sold over a half million copies. I've read it. It's excellent. Losing his only son did something in Bob Buford. It gave him a tender heart. A tender heart that God used to move mountains. You see, only God can do that. Are you ready to trust him like that today?